What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to our program. Tom Harbin here with you. So in 1926, Ernest Hemingway published a novel titled The Sun Also Rises. And there's a line from it that has been uh, used and reused and attributed, wrongly attributed to a whole lot of other people. But basically, it was a piece of dialogue in a scene that takes place in Santiago, Chile. And he says, uh, how do you go bankrupt, Bill asked. Two ways, Mike said, gradually and then suddenly. And it's, you know, what they're describing is tipping points, you know, these, these points where things that are progressing along in a linear fashion, suddenly something changes and they go from linear to logarithmic or, or some other mathematical, uh, whatever you call it, you know, a way of describing things. And, uh, you know, we're seeing incredible climate change here. Let's ask an expert about this. Dr. Michael Mann is on the line with us, the distinguished professor of meteorology and the director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences, recipient of the Tyler Prize, author of several books, most recently, The New Climate War. Michael Mann with two N's dot net is his website. His Twitter handle is Michael E. Mann with two N's. Uh, Dr. Mann, welcome back to the program. Have we entered a new phase of climate change? I mean, 116 degrees here in Portland? Yeah, uh, Tom, it's always good to be with you, my friend. You know, we are seeing some remarkable impacts of climate change now playing out in real time uh, on our television screens. Uh, it, it reminds me of a, another uh, great Ernest Hemingway novel, The uh, Snows of Kilimanjaro, oh, yeah. uh, because the snows of Mount Kilimanjaro are literally disappearing before our eyes. Uh, that sort of legendary ice cap um, on this majestic mountain in the equator with, with giraffes and zebras looming in the foreground, that ice cap is going to be gone. And so we are seeing unprecedented changes take place. But this last few weeks, the extreme weather events that we've seen, uh, I think really sort of crystallize one basic fact. The signal has now emerged from the noise. A decade or two ago, if you had asked me, was this climate, you know, was this extreme weather event impacted by climate? Was that extreme weather event impacted by climate? I would have had to say, well, you know, we have to perform a study using climate models, seeing how much more often that sort of event becomes when you add greenhouse gases. Um, and maybe we can tease out the signal. 
Well, that's not where we are now. We don't have to tease out the signal. It's playing on our television screens before us in the form of these unprecedented heat waves and droughts and wildfires and floods, superstorms. This is climate change. And the signal has emerged from the noise. Dangerous climate change, by some measure, is here. And the real issue is how bad are we willing to let it get? I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that we are now at about 1.1 degrees of climate change since the pre-industrial baseline? It's more like 1.2, actually. Okay. Um, and it's increasing by about 0.2 Celsius, you know, nearly half a degree Fahrenheit per decade now. So that seems nonlinear, too. <laughs> it's, uh, this is... Well, it's... That, that's linear, but it's bad enough because that means you intersect two degrees Celsius, let alone one and a half degrees Celsius, which many scientists say is the danger limit. You intersect two degrees Celsius in a matter of decades if we continue just on this linear path that we're on. And so right. it really underscores the fact we've, we've got to decarbonize our economy very quickly now. Well, and, and my question where I was going with that was, you know, we're already at 1.2 degrees and we've been operating on this assumption and the, you know, the Paris Accords and, the, and, and all the other ones prior to that. Uh, we're operating on the assumption that two degrees was the point at which we should really, really start to freak out. And uh, I'm really starting to freak out here at 1.2 degrees. I mean, this, uh, I, we've got trees all over here in Oregon that are, that are dying right now that, yeah. that have, you know, 100-year-old trees, uh, the, you know, of, of all different species, plants that are dead. Um, there's now this giant uh, hot blob off the coast of Oregon that seems to be affecting our weather. Um, but it has killed, uh, it, it is killing the, the sea life, particularly the bottom-dwelling sea life uh, through hypoxia, right. yeah, by, you know, right. by depriving them of oxygen. Um, and, and that's, I mean, there's, it's like every little thing that you can identify as a separate discrete component has all these multiplier effects. And, and uh, you know, do we need to reevaluate this? I, want, I, I understand that the IPCC yeah. is coming up with a new report uh, maybe as much, maybe as early as next month. Um, do you have any insights into that and, and you know, uh, how bad it is now, how bad it's going to get, and, and, what, and, and, and how do we go about rapidly decarbonizing our environment? What are the recommendations being made? Yeah, so um, that new report is scheduled for early 20, uh, 2022, so, um, but they are finalizing uh, that report. It's going through its final uh, round of review. Uh, here's the thing about those reports. There generally aren't any surprises because they are based on the existing scientific literature. And so we already know more or less what the IPCC is going to conclude. And what they're going to conclude is that the warming is pretty much on pace. The warming of the planet is as we predicted. And as you allude to, we're at 1.2. We're warming 0.2 degrees Celsius per decade. It doesn't take you know, complicated mathematics to figure out that we cross that threshold uh, pretty quickly, that threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius, nearly 3 Fahrenheit, and 2 degrees Celsius, much worse if we don't decarbonize our economy. Um, so that's what the IPCC is basically going to say. They're going to say, look, the warming uh, continues as long as we continue to burn fossil fuels. We understand that. Um, the warming of the planet may be proceeding more or less as the models predicted, but some of these impacts um, are taking place sooner 
or they're playing out in a more dramatic fashion than the models anticipated. And that includes the melting of ice and the, the rise of sea level. And it includes these extreme weather events that we're seeing. And there are these knock-on effects. As we talk about tipping points in the climate system, but even aside from the question of whether these are tipping point elements in the climate system, the impacts involve tipping points, involve thresholds. Um, there's only so much warming that these ocean biota that you're talking about can endure. And we see millions of organisms die out off the Pacific Northwest coast in recent weeks because of this unprecedented warmth that simply exceeds the level that they can cope with. The same thing will happen with us. Large parts of the planet will become too hot for humans basically to exist if we continue on the course that we're on. So there are these knock-on effects. These are the, there are these amplifying factors. And there are these thresholds that some amount of warming, we exceed our adaptive capacity as a species. We cross that threshold. And, and that's where we start to talk about societal collapse. That's a possible future, but it doesn't have to be our future. What the science also tells us is that if we can get our act together later this year, COP26 in Glasgow, we have to make sure that all the countries of the world make commitments that will have our carbon emissions within a decade. Let's stop talking about what happens at 2050. That's kicking the can way down the road. We've got to talk about what happens by 2030. We've got to bring those carbon emissions down by factor two. That means we need policies that will get us there. And there is still this sort of implementation gap where some countries are saying, look, we're, we're going to do this. We pledge to bring our carbon emissions down by factor two. And yet their policies um, are not in line with those promises. We have to make sure that governments are backing up those commitments with actual policies that get us off fossil fuels as quickly as possible and move us towards a, a greener, cleaner economy. Well, and this is where, you know, uh, I, I, it seems like one of the things that the fossil fuel industry has has promoted in and the, and the climate deniers, uh, well, is, this isn't quite climate denial, it's, it's kind of a soft version of it, right. is yeah. uh, it's all about individual responsibility. You need to turn off your light bulbs. And the simple reality is we can all turn off our light bulbs when we're not using them, and that's not going to have even one one-thousandth of the impact of a national policy of imposing a carbon tax, for example. That this has yeah, to be done at the level of yeah. government. It's absolutely right, Tom. It's a major theme of my book, The New Climate War. It's one of the sort of tactics that are being used by the forces of inaction, fossil fuel interest polluters, to prevent us from getting off of fossil fuels. Look, as you allude to, they've sort of evolved away from denial because you can't deny what's plainly evident to people who are watching the news, who are watching their television screens. So instead, they've turned to these other tactics, and one of them is deflection is deflecting attention away from the needed systemic changes to individual behavior, as if it's just about you and me not flying anymore. It's very convenient for polluters to make it about you and me when, in fact, you and I can't provide subsidies for renewable energy. We can't block new fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, we can't provide incentives uh, for renewables. Uh, pricing on carbon, all these things that need to happen to decarbonize our economy have to be done at the societal level. And we need politicians who are willing to pass those policies rather than simply act as a rubber stamp for polluters. There you go. Dr. Michael Mann, 
his new book, The New Climate War, is out. Michael Mann with two ends.net, the website. You can tweet him at Michael E. Mann. Dr. Mann, it's always great having you on, my friend. Thank you so much for dropping by. You too, Tom. Thank you. Yep. Have a great afternoon. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. Scott in Washington Township, Michigan. Hey, Scott, what's on your mind today? One thing I wanted to just mention, I will not call it climate change. That's a Frank Luntzism. It's global warming is really what's happening. Yeah. Um, the question I have, and I got a couple things. How do we convince China and India to reduce their carbon footprint? The uh, world is convincing them right now. India, you know, last summer, India experienced literally tens of thousands of deaths as a result of these massive heat waves. And uh, I mean, you're dealing with the Modi government and, you know, he's kind of an autocrat, but they're figuring it out. And China just had this, these massive floods in South Central China. Yeah. China is actually decarbonizing faster than any country in the world right now. And I mean, their, their electric car industry, they lead the world way beyond anything in America. In China, the taxis they're all electric taxis and they pull into the recharging station and instead of recharging the batteries, which can take a half hour, they drop the battery out from underneath the a robot does this. It drops the battery out from underneath the, the car, slides it out of the way, brings a new battery in, pops it up into, into the car. The car drives off. The old battery gets charged. It's like, you know, it's amazing. I mean, what they're doing. So uh, that was my idea, Tom. I had that idea years ago. <laughs> yeah, well, they're doing it. They're doing it. We're not, but they are. Because of global warming, and you know, I, I went to Arizona recently, and it was so dry. There were wildfires everywhere. Mm. How do we deal with this? You've had Carolyn Baker on your show before. Is it time to have her on again? I don't recall who Carolyn Baker is. Oh, I thought you had her on. She used to be the Lifeboat Hour host um, um, after I'm, Michael Rupert passed I am, away. I am not familiar with her. Okay, she's a, a, a psychologist. She's written a couple books on how to deal with collapse and, mm -hmm. and climate change, but it might yeah. be worth looking up. Orlov, uh, Dmitry Orlov writes about that extensively too, about collapse. He's got okay. a blog yeah. on that, um, you know, and how to deal with it. And, and you know, we're, we're kind of inching into the prepper area and I'm, I'm reluctant to go there. But I totally but, get, you know, it's not a terrible thing to, to be thinking about. I mean, one of the, this article in the Washington Post today, I mean, literally in today's Washington Post about where is the best place in the world to be when civilization collapses. Um, and the conclusion they came to was New Zealand. Uh, they were talking yeah. about how all these billionaires are buying land in New Zealand. And there's a whole industry converting uh, vacant missile silos in the American Midwest into you know billion dollar or multi-million dollar bunkers for billionaires so right. they're getting ready well if if we can ever get this under control for the sake of my kids and their kids um yeah. there's a gentleman that passed away a few years ago jacques fresco who did the venus project it's a glimpse of a resource-based economy and a future of sharing it's it's really interesting to to read what he was uh, all about it's I will, called the I, venus project i will have to uh, google that Thank you very much, Scott. Right, cool. It's good to hear from you. Appreciate it. Rick in Irwin, Tennessee. Hey, Rick, what's up? Yeah, you know what? Uh, um, I was thinking about this uh, global uh, polarized melting and stuff like that. I mean, just as, you know, off the top of my head, I was thinking, let's just paint all the roofs in the whole country or the world or whatever white. 
You know, it's not Maybe. such a crazy idea. It, there is a substantial amount of rooftop, and a lot of uh, buildings that have flat roofs already paint them white. Um, just, you know, to, to cool them down. The, the, another alternative, Rick, is to put solar panels on the roofs of every building in the world. Um, there, you can now buy where shingles. Panel, put white, where there ain't a solar panel, put white paint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you I, if, it, if it don't have a solar panel, it's got to be white. I'm, I'm with you. It's not a terribly, uh, it's not a bad idea. Um, thank you. Don in uh, Baldwin, Iowa. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today? Well, I wanted to talk about uh, the river I live next to. I'm not too far from Dubuque on a tributary of the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And I've been canoeing and kayaking this little reach of the river for probably 30 years. And 11 years ago, I bought a uh, quarter-mile frontage on it. And at that period of time, the, the river was pretty much normal. Um, I planted pecan trees next to the riverbank on a little floodplain terrace and and I planted a batch of wildflowers in a two-acre plot. And over the years, I've, I've noticed some, some big changes come by. Yeah, we had droughts in 2012. and But in uh, 2018, all of a sudden we had, instead of an annual average rainfall amount of around 30 inches, we had 50. And in 2019, we had 48. And in 2020, we were just about in the mid 40 inches range hmm. also in the fall so you think of, you have a new normal august of yeah well it might be a new normal and and i noticed one thing in 2019 the month of august the river was up about five feet and it stayed that way for uh, several weeks and it really eroded a lot of the banks hmm. and on my side i lost about 10 feet so some of my pecans which were safe now were teetering and another thing is in the winter of 2021, 20, the river didn't freeze. And I have a neighbor that's 90 years old, and he says he never remembered. He lives here all his life, and it mm. always freezes up or yeah. froze up before. So you're seeing climate change in real time right in front of you. Exactly. And right now, I'm, I, don't, I have concerns that the river, when we do have a flood, it's going to do like the... They predict that we'll have more intense rain or weather events that last a long period of time, yeah. whether it's going to be drought or rain or snow or cold weather or warm weather. Yeah, yeah. No, Those what's happening is the, the extremes are being exaggerated. This is this is the problem. Don, I'm sorry we're out of time. i got to run. But thank you for the report from Iowa and, and a, you know, a very thoughtful analysis of what's going on. Thank you very much. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. 
They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. My op-ed today over at HartmanReport.com is about climate change. It's kind of a follow-on. Uh, Jason Box was our guest, the uh, climate scientist. He spent 20 years, or nearly 20 years, since 19, what was it, 94? Since 1994, up in the Arctic, working for the, the Danish Geological Survey up there. And, you know, he had some pretty bad news, which is that because... The Arctic is warming roughly three times faster than it is here at the, in the temperate zones in the mid-latitudes. The uh, consequence of that is that the Arctic, which has been storing carbon, or at least carbon neutral, for millions and millions of years, where this carbon has been locked in the ice, is now a carbon emitter, uh, which means that we've crossed a threshold, we've crossed a tipping point, and not a good one. And so uh, in my op-ed today, it's titled Civilization Ending Climate Change is Knocking on Our Door. And I embedded in that op-ed, and I, I, I encourage you to check it out. There's, there's no ads. You don't have to pay anything. You don't have to si subscribe or anything. You can just, just read it um, and, uh, at harbinreport.com. And embedded in it are two YouTubes. One is the one that uh, seven years ago, uh, George and Leo DiCaprio and me and Lila Connors and Earl Katz and, uh, and uh, a few other uh, great people um, uh, helped put together this 11-minute this documentary called Last Hours. It's over on, on YouTube if you just Google my name and Last Hours and, uh, and probably Leo's name too. And, and, uh, or though you could see it, I, I embedded it in today's op-ed uh, at HartmanReport.com. And when we published that seven years ago, it was about the Permian mass extinction and how uh, most of the science suggests that the end stage of the Permian, when, when uh, you know, something like uh, 70 to 90 percent of all life on Earth died, that it was the consequence of uh, methane being mobilized in the, in the, uh, around the margins of the continents, uh, this uh, frozen uh, methane clathrate, uh, methane crystals. And uh, we're not there yet. In fact, we're still apparently quite a ways from there. Although what Jason Box was talking about was just the methane trapped in the permafrost, which he said is uh, equal to two to three times the amount of carbon in the entire atmosphere, which is breathtaking and mind-boggling. 
I mean, this is just, you know, the, the atmosphere around our Earth has about the thickness relative to the planet of the peel of an apple, or maybe at the, at the best, the skin of a grape. It's just this very, very thin layer, and we've been poison, pouring poison into it for 200 years now, um, you know, since the Industrial Revolution and the age of coal. And we have now gone past the point where climate change, global warming, the climate emergency, we have now gone past the point where it's going to cause misery and sea level rise and climate refugees. We already have that. It's going to be 100 degrees here in Portland, Oregon this afternoon. And it was 116 degrees here a couple of weeks ago, which is just, you know, unprecedented. And this, this heat wave is now moving uh, toward the Midwest. And as Jason Box uh, described yesterday, this is the consequence of the jet stream collapsing. And the jet stream is collapsing because the thing that made and kept the jet stream what it was and where it was was the frozen ice cap on the top of the world, you know, and that ice cap has melted. And, and sea, sea water, which is dark, absorbs a hell of a lot more heat than ice, which is white and reflects the ice or reflects the sunlight and the heat back into outer space. So we, we the, you know, there are like way stations, mileposts where we can stop. Um, the first one being, you know, had we, had we gotten this under control back in the 60s, 70s, 80s of the last century, when scientists, including scientists working for Shell and ExxonMobil and others of the fossil fuel companies were saying, you know, this is going to cause significant global warming if we keep burning our product. And the response of these fossil fuel giants and the billionaires that they created was to say, oh, well, let's hire some scientists to lie to people about it. It was the old tobacco lobby trick. You know, it's uh, high, you get a, a few front men, a few shill scientists, you create some uh, nice sounding think tanks and you go, you know, the, the Center for Climate Studies and or whatever, you know, I, I don't know that that's one of them specifically, but, you know, something that sounds very legitimate. And then you go on all the TV shows going, there's no climate change, and, and you have debates on CNN and stuff, all just to postpone the day of reckoning. Well, that 40, 50, 60 years of lying to us has brought us to the point where it's no longer possible for us to mitigate carbon emissions enough to prevent climate refugees. We have climate, in Nicaragua right now is in a climate crisis. The, the, the majority or the preponderance of the refugees that we're seeing at our southern border are, did I say Nicaragua? I meant Guatemala, excuse me, are from Guatemala. And uh, the, the, the Arab Spring was caused by climate change. And when that uh, young man in Tunisia set himself on fire, kicking off the uh, Arab Spring, it was because the price of wheat had gone up. The price of wheat had gone up because the desert is moving south in North Africa. And, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of farm, farmers have lost their farms from Syria to, to Libya to Tunisia to Egypt. Egypt lost their democracy as a consequence of that. They're now a military dictatorship. Syria, all these refugees streaming into Damascus and other Syrian cities, when they started demanding food and housing, uh, President Assad just cracked down on them, started shooting people in the streets, and now you've got basically a civil war going on in Syria, in, in Libya. Uh, you know, it didn't help when we, we supported the guys who were killing Gaddafi, but um, it, with or without Gaddafi, Libya has devolved, as a, again, as a, largely as a consequence of climate change, 
into a series of near-feudal city-states, you know, separated by massive chunks of desert. So we've already hit the point where climate change and climate refugees and climate deaths are in the millions worldwide and starting to take out agricultural land in the United States. We're on the verge of, of running out of water, which will mean running out of electric power. Uh, you know, the Lake Mead, the Hoover Dam is down to uh, levels that it hasn't seen since it was first filled in the 1930s, I think uh, 1935, thereabouts. Um, and, and that's the, the electricity supply for Southern California and, and Nevada. So, you know, that we can't stop. Next step, the end of human civilization. Things get so bad that basically wars start breaking out all over the place. And people say, well, how could you say that? That's just, you know, beyond imagination. Well, no, that has happened over and over and over again throughout history from local climate change. The Anastasi, uh, who used to, you know, the Native American, this was a thousand years ago in uh, Colorado and Utah. They just literally vanished in the blink of an eye Why? because there was a 300-year drought. They all ended up, you know, moving down to, to uh, New Mexico and Arizona and Texas. This massive migration. Uh, the end of the Mayan civilization 3,000 years ago was the result of climate change, local climate change. The end of the Egyptian civilization, the pyramid builders, was because of climate change. The end of the Iraqi civilization, the Sumerian civilization, was, the, was because of climate change. Um, we had between 1550 and 1660 in Europe, you had the Little Ice Age, which produced wars and famines and disease in Europe. So, but these were all local climate events. These were just, you know, the things that happen normally with, with you know, because cl local climate change is part of the normal climate variability. But now we are impacting it at a global level. There's no place left to run. And you know it's getting serious when you see the headline, and this was in yesterday's Washington Post, you know, which is just like, as I was writing this, after I wrote this article, I, I was just reading the papers last night. I wrote the article yesterday afternoon, as I, I typically do, uh, between my time from 2, 2 p.m. to around 6 p.m. is my, you know, right tomorrow's rant time. And I finished writing the article, and I was sitting down in the, pay, in the, in the living room uh, listening to Chris Hayes' show and reading the Washington Post on my phone. And here's this article in the Washington Post, the headline, The Best Place to Ride Out a Global Societal Collapse is New Zealand, Study Finds. I mean, when the Washington Post is running, you know, major like front page articles about where to go when society collapses, you know, I'm not exaggerating when I say climate change could lead to civil, you know, to rocking civilization itself. That's the next milestone that we will hit if we don't do something radical now and now being now over the next two, three, four years, we don't have much time left. And if we fail to hit that milestone, then, you know, and that gets cooked into it, then the next one is, are we going to have something like the Permian mass extinction? And I embedded both those videos, uh, my conversation with Jason Box and the video that Leonardo DiCaprio and I made seven years ago in the article that you can read over at Hartman Report. They're both short. The one that Leo and I did is 11 minutes. The one with Jason Box is around 12, 13 minutes. And they're both embedded in that op-ed that you can read at Hartman Report. And, and I, I encourage you to do that and to share it with people. I, I really think this is the issue of our day. I, I, there, you know, I'm going to tell you about the coronavirus after the break, the new Delta variant and what the CDC, we just, some stuff just got leaked out of the CDC that's just, you know, 
shocking. But that, in a way, is the result of climate change, too. It's humans moving into habitats that hadn't, you know, where humans hadn't been before. In this case, caves full of bats. So serious stuff. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's time to, to commit mass suicide or anything crazy like that. It's time to get things done and to stop blocking a three and a half trillion dollar infrastructure bill that'll green us. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Anyhow, I promise I'll be very brief about the Delta variant on the other side of this break, and I'll pick up your phone calls right away. Okay, just very, very quickly, and then I'll pick up your phone calls here. The CDC, this, uh, this was a, uh, basically a deck, a uh, PowerPoint deck or a slideshow kind of presentation that has been leaked from inside the CDC. They're going to be publishing this information in the next week or two, but it's got to go through an internal peer review process. So, you know, I know the headline over on Drudge says, CDC says wear a mask, but is hiding data. No, they're not hiding the data. It's got, you know, before an agency like the Centers for Disease Control can actually publish something, they have to be able to say, this is completely bulletproof. Everybody who could have any input on it has had their input. We have heard from all parties. Everybody agrees this is correct. They're not 100% there yet. It's largely procedural. But anyhow, what they're saying is that the, uh, the R value, the R, the R, the reproduction rate, you know, you'll recall, we talked about this, you know, like a year ago, we were talking about what's the R rate, the, the reproduction rate of, in other words, how many, for one person who gets sick, how many people do they typically sicken? How contagious, it's a, me, a way of measuring how contagious something is. And, you know, measles has got like an R value of 19. It's the most contagious virus, basically airborne virus known to man. You know, the flu is around two or three. And it turned out that COVID was around, around two or three, the original COVID. Well, this has an R value of at least 10. And now this wasn't in the CDC deck. I saw a piece uh, in one of the British medical journals last week suggesting that it might be as high as 19. So that's just insane. And uh, the point of the presentation, according to the Washington Post, is that the war has changed. That's a phrase from their deck. And the Delta virus is so transmissible and so dangerous we got a report this morning from the Children's Hospital of Arkansas. They have 40 kids in their ICU right now. Kids, children. Under 12, half of them are under 12. The other half who are over 12 are all unvaccinated. But, uh, and some of them are intubated. I mean, this is starting to hit kids. It's starting to hit everybody. You know, uh, every day there's a new story. Raw Story does a great job of keeping track of this, rawstory.com. But every day there's a new story of some person, you know, in their four, 30s or 40s who is being intubated, or in this case, the guy, the, the, the story yesterday was a 45-year-old guy. They showed his picture, you know, a healthy, skinny guy, you know, I don't mean like emaciated, just, you know, as to, as to say, not obese, which is a, a known, you know, risk factor. Um, he, had, he had no risk factors. He wasn't overweight, he wasn't diabetic, he was a healthy young guy. He just had never been vaccinated. 45 years old, he had, he lost his leg to COVID from these massive blood clots that this disease causes. So, anyhow, okay, I'm sorry, it took longer than I thought. Let's see here, Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today? Well, you know, the solutions to all this have existed for quite some time, and that's solar power and wind power. And I wanted to talk about geothermal, let's not forget. Yeah, yeah, exactly, where the geothermal is. Yes. There's a plan afoot in California right now to put 
probably about, I don't know, five, seven miles offshore of Morro Bay and Humboldt, not far from the border with Oregon, these big windmills, they're going to be out in the ocean. I guess they're going to be floating, so, you know, they're not going to be anchored to the bedrock uh, underneath these seas. So I guess, you know, they might be able to roll through huge swells that happen during the wintertime. And then, you know, we've got these solar, big solar farms out in deserts here and there. And from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, the transmission of the power is diluted if it has to go pretty far distance-wise. And then, of course, you can have the number on that, Dennis. 17% of all electricity generated in the United States is lost in transmission lines. Okay, that's not a lot. Well, so 17%, that's, a, that's, that's you know, hundreds of billions of watts. That's true, too. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad you... So, so it is true. The further away from the source, the more dilution. That's and, correct. you know, the other, the, other, uh, the other sensible thing, of course, is to just have everybody with a home uh, have uh, solar on their roof. Yep. And then you've got all these office buildings here and there, and a lot of office buildings have flat roofs. Uh, easy to put solar up on a flat roof. Yep. And there's nowhere near enough of that. Uh, you know, I would hope that this, uh, the second infrastructure bill, that's, that's what I'm calling it. The first one is the Republican-Democrat one, of course. And I don't know how much there is in there for green, but it's Very only, little. what, half a... Very little. The, yeah, the not, Republicans required them to strip out all the stuff that was really green, green stuff and just, just basically repair roads and bridges and water pipes. Yeah. In other words, this, uh, keep the status quo. Right. Uh, but the next bill, which, you know, cinema said she's not against actually she's against the cost well, you know raise, raise the raise taxes on the rich and that's taken care of yeah. how about like you said with the irs if you funded the irs the way they should be you could you could get that one trillion dollars that the guys like bezos get to uh, stick in their wallet every year or use to so, blow themselves into outer space yeah yeah so you know this is the thing though i'm on my street there's there's about i don't know there's five of us who have solar, and there's about another 15 houses that don't. So, you know, I could say one-third of my street is solar. Or it should be it should be 80% of the houses yeah. on my street. No, I, I agree. And, and a, you know, a friend of mine in Vermont has solar, and the, the cost was almost nothing because the state heavily subsidizes it. Uh, Louise and I got a quote to put solar on our house here in Oregon, and it was like over 50000 bucks. Um, there was a subsidy, but I think it was only $7,000 or something like that. Um, so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Oregon seems to be a little behind the curve, <laughs> to say the least. But a lot of, I believe California is way up there, too. You can, you can put solar on your roof in California for basically no cost. Well, apparently that's true, but for some reason, uh, the, the comedian Bill Maher, he can't get solar. He's been trained for three years. He makes it a big deal on his TV show. Huh. <laughs> well, you know, maybe his house doesn't face south or something. I mean, who knows? I, I, I have I, no I, idea. Yeah. Dennis, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Orion in Seattle. Hey, Orion, what's up? Hi, Tom. There has been some data and much talk suggesting that global warming could not be reversed and that we should give up hope. Well, that's some not what Jason Box was saying. He was saying we need hope. to decarbonize the atmosphere, and this should be the equivalent of, you know, trying to put a man on the moon. This, this should be the, the, the next big technological project. Absolutely. We must act. This must not be an excuse for inaction. 
We must act for our dignity to give our lives meaning and for what hope we may have. For our children and grandchildren. Amen. We have to spend a lot of money, and this is an investment which will stimulate the economy. It is going to create jobs and opportunity. It is not wasted money. We would have to spend a lot of money on infrastructure anyway. Mm-hmm. And I would, I, I hope that uh, you may have a chance to invite someone from Project Drawdown on your show in the future. Oh, that's a good Project suggestion. Project Drawdown. Yeah. But who's the guy who wrote the book, Drawdown, that the whole thing is based on? I don't know. I, yeah. I'm in love with him, but I don't. I haven't really. Yeah, I used to. Kept I used to correspond with him years ago. It's been a long time since we've talked, but uh, we should get him. We on this we need to hear from them. Perhaps they're even too optimistic. But they've given plans and estimates for reversing global warming, which I believe are comprehensive. I believe their data is accurate and honest. And perhaps they can clarify subjects such as the role of nuclear power because we don't need new nuclear reactors, but we may have to extend the lifespan of existing ones, et cetera, and that we need some hope. Yeah, I'm with you, Ryan. I'm with you. Thank you very much for the call. Jim in Lake Isabella, California. Hey, Jim, you wanted to talk about Jason Box. Yeah, good morning, Tom. Thank you for having Jason on the air. He he is probably the Paul Revere of of climate uh, scientists as far as warning what's coming up in the near future. The one thing that I didn't like about his presentation is that, I I mean, I've been following Jason for quite a while, and he was not quite as, he was far more stoic than I've heard him in the past. If you recall, in August of 2014, he wrote an article about the release of clathrates in the East Siberian Sea, north of Siberia, mm-hmm. and saying that if any part of that gets out, we're effed, right? Yeah. And he yeah, was. Rolling he Stone was, magazine, in fact, did an article about him based on that. Yeah, and, but I think he caught a lot of flack, and, and I, I think that he was kind of holding back on your show mm-hmm. uh, because in that article he talks about how the, his Danish colleagues had found over 700 columns of methane leaking up from the floor of the sea and into the atmosphere. Yep. And you know, again, this is 2014, so I would suspect that the reason you're getting 100 degree temperature today in Oregon is, is part of that. I agree. Uh, and so, you know, Michael Mann is a wonderful man. He, he has a good heart, but he's more like the Neville Chamberlain of climate scientists. He's, he's far too conservative, although he has I wouldn't say uh, that. I'd say that, that what Michael Mann is doing is holding to the peer-reviewed science, to the consensus science, and that is changing very, very rapidly. And he's the first to tell you that. Yeah, I, I know, you know, over the yeah over the past four years, he's adjusted from twenty one hundred down to twenty thirty. But yeah, uh, I, I, but all, all your callers here talking about about this stuff. There really isn't enough time to do all the things that they're wanting to do, like water and Right. And, uh, no, we've just got to really, stop stop blowing out the carbon and figure out a way to get the carbon that's in the atmosphere back in the ground. That's, well, have, have Jason on more often, sir. Thank you. Will do, Jim. Thank you. We'll be back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. 
You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Last Hours of Humanity, Warming the World to Extinction, a book about extinction. The climate scientists' warnings have come true. There is more carbon in our atmosphere, trapping heat and moisture than ever before in the 165,000-year history of the human race. We are on the verge of the first ice-free summer in the Arctic in three million years. And back then, the Earth was a very different place from the one currently cradling us. The consequences of a warming planet are appearing much faster than had been projected by climate scientists of just a decade ago. The most dire warnings, rising oceans, freak storms, and agricultural collapse they're all taking place right now, and it's going to get worse. But now other voices have entered the fray, those of geologists who study the longer-term implications and histories of a planet undergoing rapid global warming. Specifically, they are focused on extinctions. The climate scientists, geologists, and those from related scientific disciplines need to continue talking to each other because at some point we may be able to see the critical moment in which the current climate crosses from the realm of a global destabilizer to a global extinction event. We must wake up. It's hard to imagine life without Earth. We take the vast variety of life on this planet, and even our own existence, for granted. But numerous times in our planet's history, life as we know it has come close to disappearing entirely. We call these events mass extinctions, and we even teach schoolchildren about those times of great death on our planet. For example, we know that long ago, on a much more unstable planet, the dinosaurs were killed by an asteroid striking the Earth. This leads many people to believe that as long as we don't see an asteroid hurtling toward the planet, all is well. But this is not rational thinking for several reasons. The asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs and started a major mass extinction is the only event having to do with outer space that we can trace with any certainty. And new science indicates that the asteroid impact itself wasn't what killed the dinosaurs. It was the global warming that followed it. New science has discovered a common theme in all of the extinctions in the past, and it's woven right into the global fabric of today as yet another mass extinction threatens our planet. That global consistent thread is global warming. We have had six extinctions in the billion-year history of life on our planet. Each sharp spike indicates one of these mass extinctions. Occurring about 450 million years ago, the Ordovician slash Silurian mass extinction devastated marine life, which at the time dominated the planet. In a series of two extinctions, 60 and 70% of all life on the planet was taken, respectively. Then, fewer than 100 million years later, the planet was rocked again. The Denovian period was capped off by a 20 million year death march. It killed off 70% of life on Earth. 
This included many coral reefs, which didn't return for another 100 million years. We know of the KT extinction, the Cretaceous tertiary extinction, which occurred 65 million years ago, ending the reign of the dinosaurs. There was also an extinction event 200 million years ago, known as the Triassic-Jurassic mass extinction. But none of these extinctions explains the huge spike shown in the center of the previous chart. That one happened 250 million years ago and was the worst mass extinction of species event in the history of our planet. It was the extinction of all extinctions. Referred to as the Great Dying, the Permian Mass Extinction took out at least 95% of all life on the planet in fewer than 100,000 years, an instant in geological time. Professor Paul Wignall of the University of Leeds and an expert on mass extinctions told me that the Permian was the greatest crisis that life on Earth has ever suffered. Only in the past two decades has the cause of the Permian extinction been understood. It was speculated that an asteroid impact may have been the trigger, but more recent research by Professor Wignall, geologists, and other scientists around the world have revealed the true trigger came from deep within the Earth. The permanent mass extinction was initiated by a colossal flow of lava in an area of what is now Siberia. That was the trigger, but not the killer. The killer was under the water and under the ice, where trillions of tons of greenhouse gases, largely derived from carbon and frozen in the form of crystalline methane, lay in wait. Thus, global warming is the force behind the death of nearly everything on the planet during the Permian mass extinction. That point is well illustrated. You can again see the spikes of mass extinctions measured by the increase in global temperatures, with the largest spike representing the Permian mass extinction. Wignall told me, there have been a lot of disasters and crises in the geological past. It's interesting to study them because they may have a comparison to today. He added, I think it is certainly extremely significant that a lot of the main crises of the past are associated with global warming, with obvious implications for the present day. The sixth mass extinction may even rival the speed and intensity of the Great Permian mass extinction, but the sixth is not represented on either of the two previous charts. That's because it's the one happening today, right now, all around us. And then we go on to document how the burning of fossil fuels is throwing an amount of carbon into the atmosphere, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that's relatively similar to what happened with that giant volcanic eruption in Siberia 250 million years ago with the Permian mass extinction, and how it could be leading to a major extinction event. The book is The Last Hours of Humanity, Warming the World to Extinction. And welcome back, Greg in Issaquah, Washington. Hey, Greg, what's up? I was wondering why you regard, as I understood it, listening earlier this week, that you regard the impact of temperature change, average temperature change, as being logarithmic on the global environment in a variety of ways. And I was wondering why you concluded that. Well, I haven't concluded anything. My question to Michael Mann was, have we gone from linear changes in pollution producing what, what appear to be relatively linear changes in climate change to linear changes in pollution starting to hit tipping points that are going to produce logarithmic or even worse than, you know, I'm, I, I have no particular affection for, you know, log values, but, you know, much larger increases in terms of, you know, the impact on climate change. Because it certainly appears to me that that's what's happening. 
Yeah, let me jump in there because I my sense in my estimation is that it's an exponential function because if you look a logarithmic sure. function, log base ten, the uh, the y equals log base ten, and you you go from ten to a thousand, it only goes from one to three, whereas exponential it goes up much steeper. So yep. I was just saying, okay. I, I think an exponential increase is a more accurate. I think you're probably right, Greg. My point was, it's no longer linear, it's just exploding. Yeah. And you try to sound intelligent by saying logarithmic rather than, it's just blowing up in our damn faces. But I, you know, I should have <laughs> okay. used more simple language because you're right, it, it, is, it, it is an exponential, or it appears to be. Okay. I mean, uh, and yeah. just, I mean, you what just. It looks like. Yeah, look at temperature, look at hurricanes, look at rainfall. Right. I mean, there's just all these things. Right. So, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. And it's, yeah, I mean, and just from an emotional sense, when you think of a, a couple degrees centigrade change or even less, t- trying to get the, the sense of the real potential impact is hard to get my mind around. Yeah, and, and people don't get it. You say, you know, two degrees Celsius, yeah. and they go, yeah, two degrees Celsius, so what? So so my winters aren't as cold. Yeah. But then but then you say, but that two degrees Celsius means that you're going to have 116-degree summers in Portland, Oregon. And now right, it's like, right. whoa, okay, now I get you're it. Right. Thank you. Chris in San Diego. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, you were talking about solar earlier, and I uh, literally moved to San Diego from Seattle to um, sell solar. Um, cool. And, well, yeah, uh, the actual really cool part of it is that I don't actually have to sell it. Uh, we do kind of like what Germany did. We're a for-profit company, a private company, but we put the panels up and don't charge people for it. We just charge for the electricity that it produces at about half the rate that SDG&E does. And it is still amazing to me. I knock doors all day, and people are still like, what? Now, you know, solar, even though there are 10 neighbors all around them with solar panels, ah, I don't believe in solar, or, you know, get out of here. This is a rip-up. It's like, wait a minute. I'm going to lower your bill. You don't have to pay me anything. And they're still resisting it. It's wow. just So so I'm assuming that your business model is that you guys are either well-funded or you're borrowing the money to pay for the equipment that you're putting on people's roofs. You put it up there and then you've got a a period of time, 6, 8, 10, 12 years, whatever it may be, during which you're basically paying down your own costs from the revenue. And then after that, it's all gravy. Is that the, the, the business model? That's about 90% right. Our investors use the 26% tax credit. Ah, so, so that, that makes that yeah, the icing on the cake. Exactly. So do you know of anybody yep. in Oregon who's doing what you're doing? Oh, I wish we were. Now, we're growing very rapidly. We're in several states right uh, now. I do not. Now, I'm not saying that somebody else might not be doing that in, in Portland. I yeah. know that the company I'm personally working for isn't in. Uh, I've, I've reached out to three or four companies here in Oregon, and every quote I've gotten has been, uh, you know, they've been as low as 30000 and as high as 70000 and uh, that's after all the rebates and goodies and things. So it's... it's now, here's a really big one, Tom, is that I've had several of my uh, clients, as I'm setting down, and they're talking about, they're going, wait a minute, you know, this is literally the number one market in, in the country. California. Electricity rates are so... Yeah, especially Southern California. The electricity rates are so high. And so we're able to literally cut people's bills in half. Yeah. And we have to lock it in. It's like, you know, going back to 99 and saying, hey, you're going to pay you a buck a, a gallon and you can only rise at 2.9%. Now you're paying like $2, 250 where everybody else is paying 5 Right. But, yeah. They yeah it may be that Oregon, you know, I mean, we get our power off the Bonneville Dam here, so it's it's very inexpensive electricity. You're, you're cheaper. Like, yeah. But now we can still be in those. It's not necessarily, I mean, you still, it's 
just what you lose in transmission alone, you know, we, we don't lose that. It's going straight from your roof right into your house. Yeah. But I've had several of my clients say, well, hey, why didn't SDG&E do this? And I'm saying, because they're idiots. They had, I mean, literally, my company has to pay guys like me to go out here and bang on doors. It's a tough job. I mean, you know, it's mm-hmm. a grind. You, you have to hit 30 houses to get, you know, somebody go, oh, really? Yeah, Wait sales is always a numbers, numbers game. So mm-hmm. why isn't the utility, why isn't PG&E doing this? Because they're idiots. They have spent, if they had spent half of the money, Tom, that they have trying to fight the solar system, they already have access. They don't have to knock on their door. Right. They can just put it in their bill, send them an email. Hey, how about we lower your bill by half, and it's right. not going to cost you anything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer. Right now, they would be our company wouldn't exist. Right, they would have taken it over. Well, it's don't crazy. Let's, let's not tell them on the air then, Chris. <laughs> All right, Chris, well, I, I got to move along. But thank you. And and you know, right. if if uh, you ever run across somebody in Oregon who's doing what you're doing, tell them to give me a shout. I appreciate it, Vincent in Churchill, Tennessee. Hey, Vincent, what's up? Yes, how you doing? I'm calling in a comment about the solar energy guy that called. Yeah, the solar salesman. Yeah. Yes, he claims that uh, they give you everything at a lower price, that they're going to lower your your, uh, your electric bill. Yeah. That's hogwash. It's baloney. Because I had three guys come to the house. So one was our something seller, whatever. I can't remember the name of the company. But he came in and he told me that it would cost me $250. It would cost me 7.6% interest. And it would cost me an extra $60 for my electric bill. Right. Well, that's if you're buying the system, Vincent. What he's doing is a different business model where basically he's he ha, he's going to become your utility company. They his company will own your solar outfit and will just sell electricity to you. Uh, there are companies yeah, that will 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 put solar on your house and they'll even finance it for you. That's a whole completely different business model. Thanks Very a lot, fun. Vincent. Got to run. Don in Hayward, California. Hey, Don, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Yeah, I just want to do a rebuttal on the uh, solar. On the solar and salesman? No, 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 no. No, the other guy that called up, too. I mean, um, we, we put solar on our house. We live in California mm-hmm. six years ago, and it was about thirty grand. We got a 30% tax credit, so it cost us 21000 We also have a Volt. So we, this, this sixth year, we actually paid for our panels. Wow. Now, I've never seen a home improvement that will actually pay you back. I don't remember the kitchen paying me back with the uh, flat, you know, backsplash. <laughs> so after six years, you had completely paid for all the cost of your solar system, and now you're, you're charging your car, so you're no longer buying gasoline. You're running your house, and it's essentially completely free. Yes, it is. Wow. Yep. And See, and that's why... Tri- I'm sorry. This last trip we just had was uh, $43 for the whole year. Wow. See, that's why the guy, the solar salesman who called in, that's why his company can make money. Because his company basically is not selling you the equipment that you could put on your house. I'm assuming that he's going to people who can't afford to make a $30,000 investment in their house and recover well, that money that over much, six years. It's not that much now. It's about $3 a watt, so you're mm-hmm. looking at about $20,000. It's about half, of, half the cost now. The prices have come down so much. Yeah, 3 bucks a kilowatt. Other, 
Yeah. yeah, the other question I wanted to mention was about Bill Maher. Mm-hmm. Bill Maher has not mentioned anything about the solar issue, what it was. He just basically was saying that, I don't have solar, it's been this many years, or whatever it was. It was a, he put an unpermitted building on his property. Oh, so that it was, was a zoning was, issue, it wasn't a solar yeah. issue. No, it wasn't a solar issue at all. But he had a, he had a complaint about solar. Yeah, and then, and you know, and then that's the nice thing about or you know with our Volt. I mean, you know, it was, of course it has that little gas engine, but we we bought it to, to be able to have the combination of taking a trip because at the time there wasn't all these fast chargers around. Right. And, you know, that's what accelerated our buyback because, I mean, I go driving and I don't even notice the gas prices. And then I go out and I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the same here. I mean, we have a Toyota Prius plug-in hybrid, and it'll go 30 miles on the electric charge, and then it kicks over to gasoline. And we have had that for, what, four years we've been here? And I yeah. think I bought four tanks of gas. I mean, yeah, we know, just all we do is put a, a couple gallons in, yeah, a couple gallons in here, here and there to keep it fresh. Yeah, and exactly. It's been, it's, the only drawback that I see with solar is the contractors. Majority of them are, are roofing contractors, mm-hmm. and we need to do something about contracting law in this country because they make a business called A1 Roofing or whatever, and then they get complaints, and then they close that one down and make it A2. Oh, jeez. And, yeah. you know, and it happens a lot. I mean, we had a because we've had, you know, here in California, we've been having the high winds. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we put three extra panels in because we put a hot tub in, air conditioning, you know, comforts. Mm-hmm. And, and we're still paying nothing. Oh, and there wasn't, one thing I just want to quick mention is when we did this plan, we could have financed it over 10 years, which would have been fine, too. Mm-hmm. It would have cost us, it would have been $5 less than what we were actually paying in, in electric cost. Wow. And in 10 years, the panels would have paid for themselves. Yeah. And there would be no rate increases. Yeah. So you look at all those, all those advantages with panels. It's just been such a, a godsend. I mean, we, it's giddy getting in the bolt and doing stuff. Yeah, there you go. I've got, to do, I, I've got to do something here. Don, thank you. Thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. Barbara in Orange City, Florida. Hey, Barbara. Yes, Tom. I stay up at night worrying about the 2024 election. I was wondering what you thought of Pompeo, Mike Pompeo. He's so smart. He graduated first from West Point, and he is so evil. I was wondering what you thought his chances of running for president in 2024. He's certainly trying. I think he has a minimal chance. I mean, the, the one kind of good news, I suppose, for Democrats is that Donald Trump is so toxic. Yes, he has the undying loyalty, cult-like loyalty of the Republican base, or of about three quarters of the Republican base, but that's only about 20% of America, if that. And so if Trump is in the race in 2024, it's going to get real interesting because there's no way he's going to win the election. And he's going to be like the, you know, the, the dark planet that distorts the universe. So, and, and I don't think Pompeo has a chance because I think he's been tainted with Trump. Thank you, Barbara. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spouse, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carna Verde, all the folks who helped make this program work and our very and the various pieces of our program from you know podcasts to our YouTube channel and everything else. Thank you so much to all of you. And thank you to you for being with us. We'll see you on Monday. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 